Welcome to the Environmental Justice Report with me, your host, Janine Moloff. Oh, I just love hearing protesters just speaking truth to power. Tonight, we're going to talk about something that we've talked about probably before, touched upon, but it, I chose this, this particular item because of a newly released study. So, you know, if you looked on the webpage, you saw PR, the title, PR Firms Subvert, Subvert the Debate on Climate Change. And that's what this is really about. So I'm just going to get straight into it. This episode will speak to the way public relations firms uh, sub essentially subvert the true debate on climate change, change, as well as the corporate polluters who contributed most heavily to this looming global disaster. But it's those same corporate polluters that hire these massive public relations firms to basically, in my opinion, cover up their tracks. Okay? So by deflecting the facts, greenwashing, and co-opting various serious issues, these public relations firms essentially reverse the blame regarding global climate change, or as I call it, global climate devastation. And you could consider it, aka, a giant form of sociological projection. You know, you project onto others your own sin, so you look like you are without sin. So, what triggered all this was there was a new peer-reviewed study that was published in the journal titled One Earth, and the study was done by, by two researchers, one Harvard Research Associate Jeffrey, Jeffrey Suprin and Harvard Science Historian Naomi Oreskes. Now, these two, Suprin and Oreskes, they have contributed other studies. In fact, later in the show, there's another study that predates this one that goes into more detail regarding overall PR dirty tricks. Keep in mind, the public relations industry came about not by honest means. It was created by a man named Edward Bernays. He used to write propaganda. And the idea is to basically take something that is they're trying to convince the public that basically, to borrow a phrase, lipstick on a pig is some sort of Miss America. It doesn't work, but they do. It actually does work for them, but it just doesn't represent the truth. And while corporations certainly, like any business, have a right to defend their product, and they have a right to get their side of the story out, they don't have a right either through hirelings, a.k.a. public relations firms, or directly themselves from internal documents, they don't have a right to, one, lie to the public about the dangers posed by certain products, and they don't have a right to basically silence any discussion or questions. And what we found through this in another study is that the public relations spin, if you will, for fossil fuel, is very similar, the same arguments that were used decades ago in terms of public relations spin to defend tobacco. So let's get into it. There was an article in Vox, and it was written by Rebecca Leber, or Lieber, and it was released just what, a week ago, May 13th. And the headline is, 
ExxonMobil wants you to feel responsible for climate change so it doesn't have to. And the subtitle is, A New Study Reveals How the Oil Company Used Cutting-Edge Propaganda, that was their term, to focus on fossil fuel consumption. The first part of that, that uh, headline, in my opinion, says it all. ExxonMobil wants you, each one of us, to feel responsible for climate change so it doesn't have to. Okay? Kind of akin to, you know, the drug dealer blaming the client for getting hooked on meth or PCP, even though they were the ones supplying it and conning them into it. So let's get into it. So according to this piece, uh, Lieber speaks about how ExxonMobil has been incredibly effective in terms of shaping what they call the U.S. narrative regarding climate change here in the U.S. for basically 40 years. And she said, basically, you don't have to look any further than the, um, a statement by the company's communication strategist. And she quoted Mobile Vice President of Public Affairs Herbert Schmertz, quote, your objective is to wrap yourself in the good phrases while sticking your opponents with the bad ones. Now, Schmertz wrote this in 1986. So there's a little history here. Then from the 1970s on through the 90s, many of the company's public relations efforts focused on the idea of casting doubt on growing scientific consensus that, yes, burning fossil fuels is warming the planet and changing the climate and it's going to lead to disaster. And this was as documented by Inside Climate News in a piece titled Exxon's Own Research Confirmed Fossil Fuels' Role in Global Warming. It's pretty damning right there. And then they skip to the mid-2000s, and they talk about how um, ExxonMobil was using a more, they put it, sophisticated or nuanced approach uh, to quote, let's see now, give me a second here, lost my place. Yeah, here's the quote. Quote, energy-saving consumers can make a real difference. Uh, be smart about electricity use. Heat and cool your home efficiently and improve your gas mileage. End quote. And these were all basically strategies to their view of, cli of addressing climate change. Uh, another ad they placed in 08, centered on the auto industry, quote, it is important we reduce greenhouse gas emissions too. Improving the efficiency of the vehicles people drive is one way to do so. And all that sounds fine. The problem is it doesn't address the, the fact that the fossil fuel industry has known for decades that their product is giving us getting us far closer to global climate devastation. This isn't new information. They have known for decades. So they have to reverse the blame and focus on these other things, which are all very nice, but that's not where the majority of the blame goes or the source of the majority of the problem, okay? So there's, there are quite a few examples in ExxonMobil ads and other documents straight up to 2019 that this article claims do the same, does the same thing. They deflect attention away from the oil company's role in fueling climate change. And oil companies, oil, fossil fuels basically 
you know, we know that it does this, and it turns attention, focuses attention on consumer demand and dependency on the products, okay? So, again, they're trying to avoid the blame, saying, well, you know, people want this, and there's not much else we have, so what are you going to do? That mentality. So the strategy used is revealed by Supran and Oreskes, Jeffrey Supran and Naomi Oreskes. There was a comprehensive, they did a, a study with a comprehensive view of this, this strategy, okay? And it ran in the journal One Earth. And the analysis showed how, the, how, how desperately the oil giant, in this case ExxonMobil, worked to keep, to make sure the conversation regarding climate change solutions really focused on the consumer, individualizing responsibility, and took responsibility away from the company. And there's a quote from Supran. Quote, never before has been proven that fossil fuel propaganda is demonstra demonstrably one source of where this consumer and demand-focused mindset has originated from. So the industry blames the individual user. You know, you'll hear this, you'll hear kids in meanwhile saying, you have to go vegan because producing uh, cows for, uh, for, meat for beef production also warms the planet. It all sounds nice, but it's not the central thrust. So, in fact, during the pandemic, we saw firsthand, in the first weeks of the pandemic, especially in heavily polluted parts of the world, like in Italy and in Russia, we saw that their, the air pollution went down drastically in those weeks when nobody was driving. And to the point where, and the water pollution as well, to the point where things were starting to look more normal. All right, so we, you know, you can see it. But going back to the study, blaming the individual. You know, you guys are using it. You're not cutting back on how you're using fossil fuels as opposed to blaming the producers who are making boatloads of money according to them, is a, quote, well-worn tactic of other industries with dangerous products, including tobacco and firearms, end quote. And that's from the Vox article. And so fossil fuel products, when they individualize the responsibility and place it on each one of us, it really obfuscates the responsibility that companies like Exxon have to bear. And Exxon, according to this um, this article, well, actually, according to The Guardian, an article in The Guardian, is one of 20 companies responsible, quote, for one-third of energy-related global carbon emissions since 1965. I'm going to say that again. This is a direct quote um, in the case, in the, from the Vox article. In the case of fossil fuel products, individualizing the responsibility for climate change obfuscates the responsibility of companies like Exxon, one of 20 companies responsible for one-third of energy-related global carbon emissions since 1965, end quote. So, you know, we know the solution is to extract and burn fewer fossil fuels and shift to cleaner technologies. But once again, according to the study done by Oreskes and Supran, the messaging strategy that Exxon's employed, and they focus on Exxon specifically, is to, quote, downplay its role in the climate crisis, end quote. And this strategy also is used to, quote, 
undermine climate litigation, regulation, and activism. I'm going to say that again. All right? This messaging strategy used by Axon is also used to, quote, undermine climate litigation, regulation, and activism. Okay? Not only are these companies guilty as hell, and they know it, and they've known for decades, but they want to evade any responsibility, any duty to repair the damage that they've created to the lies that they put forth about their product. So Superman and Oreskes used multiple documents. They looked through a bunch, uh, quite a bit, passed for search. Uh, specifically, they looked at a 2017 paper that, as documented in uh, Mother Jones, that, quote, found ExxonMobil internally acknowledging its product's role in climate change while publicly casting doubt on the science. I'm going to say that again. So the study that Supran and Oreskes did used all sorts of documents, including past research. And part of the past research included a 2017 paper, and this paper was discussed in an article on Mother Jones. And the title was Exxon Dared Critics to Prove It Misled the Public. These researchers have called the company's bluff. This 2017 paper, quote, found ExxonMobil internally acknowledging its product's role in climate change while publicly casting doubt on the science, end quote. That says a lot right there. So a lot of this started in the 70s. company ran ads in the New York Times. The researchers looked at the ads as well as reports that were uh, aimed at investigators up through 2019. There was a total of 212 documents. And um, this really, they created, Oreskes and Steve Frank created really a, what's called a solid chronology regarding how ExxonMobil specifically communicated with the public on climate science. So they basically, Oreskes and Steve Frank targeted this one corporation so that they could really do a, a very specific and accurate job. So the early ads were very skeptical regarding climate science, no shock there. But then by 2000, um, because by then, by the 2000s, we couldn't, they could no longer say that their product wasn't contributing to global climate change. So instead, ExxonMobil started to, to emphasize the risk, the uncertainty of the risk, okay, as opposed to the scientific consensus that global climate change is caused by man-made warming, by burning fossil fuels, which ExxonMobil not only sells, but they covered up the facts. So finally, when ExxonMobil did acknowledge that they had to reduce pollution, they focused really disproportionately on how much they were doing to address the demand side of this whole issue, rather than the obvious other half, which is increasing supply. So they reversed the blame, and ExxonMobil said, well, you know, people are buying it. They're not being responsible. It's their fault, instead of looking at the fact that they were increasing supply and pushing it. Again, that's like a drug dealer that's saying, you know, I I'm sorry that you have a daily meth habit. You know, it's not my fault. I'm just basically making sure you have plenty there. So that's what was happening. And Superan ran an, an algorithm to kind of detect the most frequently used terms and topics in ExxonMobil's communications. And 
he was really surprised at what he found, and that was that the company's messaging, I'm just going to, this is a direct quote, quote, the company's messaging was largely consistent in the advertisements up to 2009 and reports up to 2019, statistically overusing certain language like risk and demand to hammer home these themes, end quote. Now, in 1977, the company was bragging about helping, quote, customers scale back their emissions of carbon dioxide. But the very next year, in 98, they encouraged the public to, quote, show a little, to show a little voluntary can-do. Then in 08, there was an ad, and it suggested that, quote, cars and trucks we drive aren't just vehicles. They're opportunities to solve the world's energy and environmental challenges. Really? Did, was anybody stupid enough to believe that nonsense? That's what they put there. I, I have to just sit here and look at it. So around 08, Exxon is saying that, quote, cars and trucks we drive aren't just vehicles. There are opportunities to solve the world's energy and, climate and environmental challenges. Okay, that, that's just playing dumber than the dog ate my homework. Unbelievable. So ExxonMobil then discussed how fossil fuel demand was growing and it was inevitable. All right, this is the idea being this is our major fuel source. What can we do about it? And they were quoted uh, in their communications saying things like, quote, oil and gas will be essential to meeting demand through 2030, end quote, end quote. Fossil fuels must be relied upon to meet society's immediate and near-term needs, end quote. Okay. Now, the company only acknowledged culpability, their culpability in a few very obscure academic journals and internal memos. They are not acknowledging their own culpability publicly at all, not, doesn't seem so anyway. Going all the way back to 1982, there was an internal memo and it wrote, this internal memo uh, stated what, what ExxonMobil never publicly admitted, that quote, the connection between Exxon's major business, businesses and the role of fossil fuel combustion in contributing to the increase, uh, I'm sorry, let me start again. So there was an internal memo in 1982 where ExxonMobil admitted something, wrote something that they would never, they never admitted publicly. That quote, the connection between Exxon's major businesses and the role of fossil fuel combustion in contributing to the increase of atmospheric CO2. So that there was a connection between Exxon's businesses, fossil fuel combustion, and the increase of CO2 in the atmosphere. That is an admission of, of guilt. So the Harvard researchers also noted a secondary trend, and that was how the company uh, basically shifted, okay? They wanted to be viewed in the mid-2000s. They changed their frame, if you will, and they wanted to be viewed as, get this, <laughs> this is sad. They wanted to be viewed as, quote, a fossil fuel savior. Oh, my God. That's like a rapist that wants to be viewed as performing a service to the young girl. 
It's that bad. Fossil fuel savior. Oh, my God. I couldn't make that up. Uh, There was a company ad in 2007 that said, quote, the increasing prosperity in the developing world will be the main driver of greater energy demand and consequently rising CO2 emissions, end quote. And the the implication, in, in other words, it was implying that the company is just this passive participant, this passive bystander, and, and you know, basically it's all these people, even in these poor countries that have the audacity, the gall to want a car, the gall to want to have electricity, you know, during the day. And, again, it, it's refusing to accept responsibility. It's reversing the blame. So they were, ExxonMobil was asked to comment on the study, and Exxon spokesperson Casey Norton called anything about this, called it a conflict of interest. Uh, Casey Norton uh, made the allegation that Oreski is on retainer for Cher Edling, and Cher Edling is one of the law firms that sued Exxon. And Norton also claimed that the research was also partially funded by the Rockefeller Family Fund, and that's also in litigation against oil companies. And according to Norton, quote, this research is clearly part of a litigation strategy against ExxonMobil and other energy companies. ExxonMobil supports the Paris Agreement, Paris Climate Agreement, and is working to reduce company emissions and helping customers reduce their emissions while working on new lower emission technologies and advocating for effective policies, end quote. So the authors of the study, Super and Oreskes, responded to Casey Norton's accusations, and they said the Sher Edling, quote, played no role in the paper we published today, nor in any other academic work we have done, end quote. And, you know, basically they're implying that ExxonMobil's statement was misleading and it was premeditated to be misleading, and I agree. Okay, so now the article goes on to climate change. So this is an article that I'm quoting from Vox, but it, it really does encapsulate the study that Supran and the Reskies did. So the pro- problem with climate change. All right, this is kind of like, if we're going to draw some sort of comparison, I would say climate shaming is to environmental concerns what slut shaming is to uh, feminists. Okay? That's what I would say. And so basically the industry and ExxonMobil specifically, they're trying to shame people. Like there's a thing called flight shame to discourage plane travel. And that was as documented, again, by Vox. Um, And they gave the example of Greta Thunberg. You know, she was um, flying. You know, she had to fly. There was no other way to get to the place she was going to. And they tried to flight shame her. But according to this writer for Vox, shame has a dark side. Quote, it can be a distraction that lets key perpetrators off the hook. All of this is a distraction. The public relations profession, you know, is a major enabler. So Superintendent Oreskes didn't have a precise measure of the exact impact ExxonMobil's marketing has had on public discourse. You know, this author saying that the methodology didn't go that far, but they also mentioned that there is a, a sizable amount of anecdotal evidence with, that policymakers and the media really have overemphasized personal responsibility 
and have neglected the idea of systemic political and economic change. Okay, so Sue Brand, one of the author studies, was quoted, quote, at the grassroots level, people get accused of being hypocrites all the time. Um, for flying, driving, or using plastics also derived from fossil fuels. Okay? And, uh, you know, that's true, end quote. And there's research from a Georgia State University paper uh, as documented by ScholarWorks, and it demonstrated how what we call shame messaging can backfire. In a 2020 paper, um, there were some cases where when people were shamed into driving less or changing their diets, people were actually less willing to want to reduce things like greenhouse gas emissions. ExxonMobil wasn't the first or the only fossil fuel company or any company period to push these narratives, which are essentially reversing the blame. Um, there was the, remember the old Beyond Petroleum Media campaign by BP? Pure nonsense, okay? The whole idea of a personal carbon footprint, footprint that was created in a 2004 to 2006 uh, campaign by BP, and it was part of their 100 plus million per year. It was a Beyond Petroleum U.S. media campaign, and this is super interesting. He's talked about it. Um, and this idea of your personal carbon footprint, as if that really makes that much difference. Um, it can make a difference, don't get me wrong, but none of this is going to help unless we really make massive systemic changes, which the industry definitely doesn't want. Superintendent Oresti said that those narratives, quote, hamstring us and they put blinders on us to the systemic nature of the climate crisis and the importance of taking collective action to address the problem, end quote, which is what I just said. The real world, real world implications of the Exxon documents. Okay. So, you know, here's the thing. Um, this, these studies have implications in the courts, okay? Multiple major fossil fuel companies like ExxonMobil are facing really an onslaught of lawsuits around the world, quote, charging that they have broken the law by pushing misinformation and thwarting climate action. Now, there was, I think there was a Supreme Court case recently um, where the court with all the conservatives unsurprisingly um, they weren't too supportive. I'll have to look that one up, but I recall that off the top of my head. The Saving Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia Law School counted approximately 884 climate cases in 2017 alone. And then by 2020, it doubled to 1,550 cases in 38 countries. And it should be noted, ExxonMobil is not the only fossil fuel company that's being sued, okay? You have to be fair here. And, but the study that Supran and Arrestes has done may be relevant to those lawsuits. First, Supran and Arrestes study notes that ExxonMobil and probably others, um, they may be pushing a clever defense with greenwashing. Now, one of their defenses that's actually been cited um, that appears again and again in, in their advertising, ExxonMobil, 
is that, quote, climate risks are common knowledge and the company bears no control over how people choose to live. Well, in a general sense, there's some truth to it. Of course, you could also make the charge that, you know, basically a meth dealer who has a meth lab in the house in your neighborhood could make the same charge. That he doesn't have any uh, any responsibility in how people choose to live. He's just fulfilling a need. You know, the fact that he has a dangerous product, meth, and that many meth houses blow up and take other houses in the neighborhood with them doesn't matter to them. So that, you know, that argument that fossil fuel, uh, ter- fossil fuel companies, attorneys make that climate risks are common knowledge, company bears no control for how people choose to live is nonsense. But Superintendent Rescues noted an example in 2018, um, Chevron lawyer Theodore Boutros Jr. Uh, argued a case in defense of five oil companies, including ExxonMobil, and it was against a lawsuit brought by multiple California cities seeking climate change damages. And Chevron lawyer Theodore Boutros Jr. offered this interpretation of the IPCC's latest report. Quote, I think the IPCC does not say it's the production and extraction of oil that is driving these emissions. It's the energy use. It's economic activity that creates demand for energy. It's the way people are living their lives, end quote. Again, you can make that that argument, but it's a specious argument. You know, your neighbor next door, forget the meth addict, the meth lab, your neighbor next door might be a firebug. And they like to leave fires burning outside because that's their right. And they don't watch them. And then eventually they burn the neighborhood down. At what point do you, do you have to kind of bear responsibility? That's a specious argument. So the judge's dismissal of the case, the judge dismissed the case and accepted this framing. Quote, would it, be, would it really be fair not to now ignore our own responsibilities in the use of fossil fuels and place the blame for global warming on those who supplied what we demanded, end quote. Well, I would tell that judge, what if this were a case, what if, what if Mr. Boutros, the Chevron lawyer, instead of defending fossil fuel companies, was defending major drug dealers? Take the judge's argument now. Would it be fair to ignore the drug addict's responsibility because they chose to take drugs. Why should you blame the the drug dealer who supplied the demand? That's how ridiculous the judge's argument is. Only thing is, it doesn't say, I I will look up the name of the judge because I think people should be held accountable. So then there's more. The affirmative defense is employed by fossil fuel company, uh, I'm sorry, the affirmative defense is employed by fossil fuel attorneys, AKA, We just sold the poison, you idiots chose to take it, excuse. Even if the plaintiffs prove their case, the defendants, the fossil fuel companies, can invoke what is called, quote, affirmative defenses, uh, which are the same type of defenses tobacco companies historically have done, such as, quote, common knowledge, such as, two, assumption of the risk, 
So they respectively argue that, quote, the plaintiff had engaged in activities such as smoking that involved obvious or well-known risk, and two, that the plaintiff, quote, knew about, knew about and voluntarily undertook the risk, end quote. So somebody named Brandt explains it this way, quote, if there was a risk, even though unproven, it nonetheless must be the smoker's risk, since the smoker had been fully informed of the controversy. The industry had secured the best of both worlds, end quote. Again, very specious argument, especially when fossil fuels monopolize our power grid. What choice? You, know, you can choose not to take drugs. You can choose not to smoke. But let's be honest here. If you live in a city like I do in St. Louis with a horrible public transit system, you, you can't get around unless you have a car. And there are no other, very few other options in terms of fueling that car. There's very few other options in terms of heating your home or cooling it. So that is a specious argument because, once again, we don't have any other options. So but the Superintendent Rescue's paper can be a useful tool for environmental activists. Okay. Um, According to Carol Muffet, who's president of the Center for International Environmental Law, she explains what Supran and Oreskes do in their paper. Basically, they, quote, prove quantitatively what has been qualitatively evident for years. Oil and gas companies insulated themselves from public scrutiny and regulatory action, even as the climate crisis accelerated, end quote. She's right. And any proof that oil companies were insulating themselves while misleading the public, yeah, it's relevant in court. has to be. Muffet also went on to say, this evidence, quote, this evidence will matter not only in the court of public opinion, but in courts of justice around the world faced with questions of industry accountability, culpability, and potential liability for mounting climate impacts. So, Superan is hoping that people don't think that their actions don't matter the rescues and Superman paper aren't saying that. They're not saying that we don't bear personal responsibility. We do. And they want people to continue to conserve. It can't just be just that side of the equation and ignoring, you know, the pusher side, ignoring the, the fault of the fossil fuel industry that very carefully monopolized, not only monopolized our fuels, but, you know, a lot, there's been a lot of banter about electric cars, which sounds lovely. I wish I could afford one. You know, Tesla makes one, but it is, it's unbelievably expensive. The average person cannot afford it. Um, but what they don't know is a little-known experiment, I think in, like, 1968, when they took a regular combustion engine and they doctored it up, and these two guys made a combustion engine go 200 miles on one gallon of gas. And, of course, the industry downplayed it because, let's face it, they can't sell enough fossil fuel that way. But the fossil fuel industry and the car industry made sure that that engine didn't go anywhere. We had a right to it. 200 miles on one gallon of gas. Can you just imagine? So, Supran's and Oreskes also say governments have to take responsibility hold major polluters accountable, amen, and that there's a, a, a wider idea of possible solutions. 
you know, they could limit the fuels that Exxon and other fossil fuel companies can extract. They can axe, in other words, get rid of pipeline projects for transportation. They can limit the opportunity to export around the world, and they can make companies pay damages, cost to vulnerable communities. That's where the environmental racism thing comes in. So this quote is, this quote, this is cutting edge propaganda coming from an industry with 100 years of experience in pioneering the art of public relations. And people should be aware of what they're subject to because otherwise it gets into our bones without us even knowing where it came from. And that is, you know, directly from, I think, Supran. So there was an update the same day. This thing published May 13, 2021, and a few hours later there was an update. Um, it did include comment from Casey Norton, the ExxonMobil spokesperson, and Supran's response to it. So you might want to check out the full Earth paper. It's a good one. Now, the same writer, let me double check this, okay, because I had to do this fast this time around. Okay. Uh, yes, Rebecca Lieber, the same writer, wrote an earlier piece, and this one ran in Mother Jones, and this ran in 2017, okay? And that's one, one of the things that I quoted earlier, okay? So in Mother Jones, the headline reads, Exxon dared critics to prove it misled the public. These researchers just called the company's bluff. And the subtitle, read all these documents and make up your own mind. And, you know, <laughs> guess what? The researchers that called the bluff on ExxonMobil back in 2017, guess both from Harvard, science historian Naomi Oreskes and Harvard researcher Jeffrey Supran. Same two people. No wonder Exxon hates them. So Lieber talk starts the article saying that two years earlier, like in 2015, both Inside Climate News and Los Angeles Times did investigations. And what they found was that while ExxonMobil acknowledged climate change is man-made and serious in internal memos and internal documents, simultaneously they, quote, publicly manufactured doubt about the science, end quote. Uh, so basically, ExxonMobil, using them as the example, they had science, scientists that worked for them, an internal memorandum that acknowledged climate change is man-made and serious. And that was as of 2015. And at the same time that the corporation publicly manufactured doubt about that same science. Again, to draw a comparison, that is akin to um, knowing that a patient has stage four terminal cancer, but telling them it's just a little indigestion. Now, Exxon tried to deal with this PR crisis, and they argued that the findings by, uh, in 2017 by, no, I'm sorry, by 2015. Let me say it again. Exxon tried to deal with this PR mess by arguing that the findings that Orestes and Supran uh, uh, described were, quote, deliberately cherry-picked statements, end quote. 
Don't you love how they don't provide, the Exxon doesn't, and their spoke deal don't provide any real proof? But as of 2017, the company's problems had grown. There were probes of its business practices, both by the New York and Massachusetts Attorney Generals, as well as the Securities and Exchange Commission. And now in 2021, okay, the same researchers outed Exxon back in 2015. So, Oreskes and Supran published their first uh, peer-reviewed comprehensive analysis of Exxon's climate communications, um, and that was back in 2015, where at the same time that Exxon dared the public to, quote, read all these documents and make up your own mind. And that was in a company <laughs> blog post. <coughs> Excuse me. That was in a company blog post in 2015. So Exxon was getting pretty cocky. Now, the, new, the paper that Oreskes and Supran did back then was titled, quote, Assessing ExxonMobil's Climate Change Communications, and it ran in the journal Environmental Research Letters. So Oreskes and Supran, back in 2015, system, quote, quote, systematically analyzed nearly 40 years of Exxon scientific research, reports, internal documents, and ads, and found a deep disconnect between how the company directly communicated climate change and its internal memos and scientific studies, end quote. So they found that the company was purposely misleading the public when this looming disaster was facing us. Um, they went on to say Exxon, quote, quiet, contributed quietly to the science and loudly to raising doubts about it, end quote. Oreskes told Mother Jones, quote, the issue of taking things out of context or cherry-picking cherry data is an important one and, all and one all historians and journalists deal with. When ExxonMobil accuses journalists of cherry-picking, there's a way we can address that. There are analyses we can do to avoid these issues. Well, if you think the LA Times is cherry-picking examples, we'll look at all of them. Nobody can say we are selecting things out of context, end quote. That's a perfect answer. If we're going to look at all of it, how can you say they're cherry-picking? So the content analysis that the Rescues of Supran did back then examined how basically 187 company documents uh, dealt with climate change between the years of 77 through 2014. And what they found was that the documents that addressed the cause of climate change, 83% um, of its peer-reviewed scientific literature and 80% of its internal documents from Exxon, from their own scientists, said that climate change was real and man-made, while the opposite was true of their, the ads that they paid for. So the researchers analyzed the ads that Exxon published in the New York Times, for instance, between 1989 and 2004. And of those, in those years, those ads, 81%, quote, express doubt about the scientific consensus tending to emphasize the uncertainty and knowledge gap, end quote. And only 12% affirmed the science. The same pattern holds for how Exxon has historically addressed the seriousness of the consequences of climate change. They downplay the impacts constantly. Um, they do this because when you downplay the impact of this, that is used so that climate, den climate deniers go on to push it, okay? And they do that so they can get more delays, so that policies that need to be implemented won't, 
policies that curb fossil fuel use, it's all a delay and obfuscation strategy, nothing more. Um, they, Orestes and Supran also found that 60% of Exxon's peer-reviewed papers, and I'm reading straight from this, and 53% of his internal documents acknowledge serious impacts. Um, again, I'm reading straight from it, quote, a 1982 internal document lists flooding and sea level rise, and a 2002 paper lists coral reef bleaching and the disintegration of the West Antarctic ice sheet among them, end quote. But then Exxon's ads were basically saying, the sky isn't falling, everything's fine. Uh, Oreskes and Supran further wrote that Exxon, quote, you know, again, the same quote, contributing quietly to the science and loudly to raising doubts about it. The distinction's important, okay? Why? According to Supran, quote, Exxon's response to the allegations from journalists and investigators was a kind of gloss or straw man. They were contributing to climate science. <clears throat> the problem was the company still had a much louder doubt-promoting position in public. It was the discrepancies that confused people, end quote. And it's true. If you're a, a fossil fuel company, you have, some, you have a bunch of internal documents that say, yes, you are contributing to this climate change disaster, but then you hire public relations firms to push that it's not a big deal, people that are scientifically illiterate, that know it, of course they're gonna think, oh, it's not so bad. Uh, in this article from Mother Jones, Exxon did not return a request for comment on the study before publication. Um, but in the past, Exxon dismissed criticisms like this um, by pointing to, and this is by their ExxonMobil perspective, um, quote, pointing to, quote, it's decades of promoting climate science research, which the paper does not dispute. Okay. So there's researchers are being fair. But Exxon's media strategy shifted over time. The company became more uniform in their response. Um, so when executives acknowledged, finally, executives acknowledged that climate change is man-made when it was just too obvious to say otherwise. They would have looked ludicrous if they had argued that point. Um, so there's, you know, this is what we're dealing with, okay? Now, they also deal with something called stranded assets. I'm not going to talk about that too much right now. Um, so this is, uh, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to talk about these researchers. For instance, Oreskes has written extensively about industry campaigns to undermine scientific findings. Um, and even when Exxon gives a little, they're still following the playbook. Oreskes was quoted as saying, quote, they are promoting a different kind of doubt. It's a doubt that says there's climate change, but we have, but we have to still use fossil fuels because there's no alternative, end quote. But Oreskes says, yeah, there are alternatives. So, you know, we're talking about the industry. Let's talk about public relations. You know, the public relations industry is one that really needs to be forced to reform massively. They should not be allowed to tell half-truths or to just directly lie. And PR industry has worked, you know, they've been hired by top corporations to really demobilize environmental movements. 
And this was a, an analysis, um, the next article, that's an important one. And this one is, um, this was in uh, the site called Waging Nonviolence. And the title was um, Public Relations Greenwashing Threats Environment, Threatens Environmental Movements. Okay, so we're going to back up here. We're talking about greenwashing, um, and it's written by Salino Gallo Cruz. Now, Salino Gallo Cruz, give a little background here, is a sociologist and professor at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. She's authored numerous essays. She's written chapters on the history and dynamics of nonviolent mobilization. She has a book titled Political Invisibility and Mobilization, Women Against State Violence in Argentina, Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia and Liberia. She's an organizing member of Mothers Out Front. And, um, you know, after she participated in Worcester's development of a city climate crisis response plan, um, she's going to serve as a Fulbright Scholar at Tampere University of Finland. So this is somebody who's very well read and knows the, you know, knows the situation, okay? So let's go and look at this. So the PR industry, Gallo Cruz offers some solutions to the mess that the PR industry pushes. And public relations firms really do pose a very specific threat to environmental movements and environmental reformers. Um, but activists are getting better about finding new ways to resist. Um, well, you have to remember something. When you go up against the fossil fuel industry, this is big money. Okay. So, and this article was published last month. Okay. So they're getting, it was right before Earth Day, and industries, too, were lining up, you know, to go green. Okay. So basically, you know, when you see these polluting companies and they're going to be eco-friendly and they're going to go green, Okay, when we're talking about greenwashing, you've heard about whitewashing, right? When somebody wants to whitewash a situation, they want to cover up the ugly, make it look like they're doing something even when they're not. Greenwashing is the same thing only applied to environmentalism. These companies want to look like they are doing the right thing environmentally while they continue to commit crimes against the planet. It's just that simple. Okay. So these market strategies promote, promote these companies, and advocates, uh, as documented by ABC News, uh, there's people that are urging the Biden administration to make these companies stop their greenwashing nonsense, okay? So they're urging the government to strengthen legal sanctions against greenwashing because, you know, a lie of omission still a form of a lie. And... Greenwashing, these corporations use it to misrepresent their environmental practices. And it's everywhere. It, it just is. Public relations itself poses a threat to any legitimate movement, especially environmentalism, because, again, you're up against big money. Okay? Um, so let, she goes into a lot of different things about her local recycling. I'm not going to get into that. The real objective of public relations is to keep client allegiance 
this is a direct quote, the objective of public relations is to maintain client allegiance through the presentation of compelling narratives, even if those narratives are mislead, misleading or untrue. So they're, you know, they, even if they're lying, so what? That's the attitude. And this is something that we have to deal with. They have to go back to, as I said before, the creation of the public relations industry. Um, you know, it's widely thought to be, uh, it started with a man named Edward Bernays. He, had, he wrote a textbook in 1928. And guess what the title was? Propaganda. Bernays wasn't even subtle. And this outlined his philosophy of really psychological manipulation of the masses for either political or economic gain. Okay? Propaganda. And then he applied this approach to advertising. You know, thus you saw nonsense like cigarettes help your health. I remember when I was a little kid in the 60s, a doctor told my dad to smoke a pipe to help him relax for high blood pressure. I'm not kidding. And the effect of this psychological manipulation, this propaganda, it has not been benign. It has hurt us. And public relations isn't about ever telling the truth. And it's not based on any objective scientific research. There's no hypothesis testing, according to this lady, no application. It's not intended to support any type of equitable anything, okay? It is to benefit their client through the psychological mass manipulation, the psychological manipulation of the masses, period. And the field, according to this woman, quote, the field has long been used to oppose activist movements and insights from sociology can help us understand how. So they have to kind of, if you're a climate activist, you have to kind of strategize a little differently. Social movements develop what social scientists call collective action frames. And a collective action frame is a way of packaging a message to, and it's, it's, a, it's a strategy, to package the message so that it more easily identifies the root and causes of social problems but it's also to promote some solutions. And the, the actors that are targeted by activists, policymakers, corporations, whatever, they develop what are called counterframing arguments. Now, that may be a direct disagreement, um, presentation of dubious evidence that supposedly disproves, but a lot of times it doesn't, okay? So we talked about greenwashing, we're also talking about co-opting, okay? So what's co-opting? You know, you heard a lot of it during Occupy, and Occupy was right. Um, when they saw traditional neoliberal Democrats trying to sound like they agreed with some of the things uh, Occupy said, Occupy said, no, these traditional politicians are co-opting our cause to water it down. And that's really what it is. Um, they concede that the claims are right, that are correct. And then they work to basically redefine what these things are and what they do. So it's, it's another manipulation is what it is. And, and 
This is really what public relations is about. It's about manipulation. It is not about ever telling the truth. So, and it allows, you know, this blurring of the lines can allow an organization to say that they share the values of a movement while basically avoiding making any substantive change that runs counter to their own bottom line, their own interest. So this is deeper than rebranding. This is about really massive manipulation. And counterframing is intended to demobilize protests. Greenwashing, which was termed in the 80s, aims to do basically three things. One, divert attention away from the uh, serious effects of a company's business. Two, slow the momentum of social movements. And three, secure long-term consumer commitments. Again, it's reversing the blame. It's really what it is. And there's another dirty public relations trip after turfing, okay, safe grassroots. We see this with the Tea Party. Okay, the same Tea Party that was funded by Coke Industries and other billionaires, they're pretending to be grassroots. There's nothing grassroots about them. That's why they're called AstroTurf, fake grass, to borrow a term. All right? So, you know, once again, they do this, um, and we have to fight this, all right? So, for instance, there's a, a group called Formosa Plastic, and we talked about them on the show, an earlier show, about how they want to build in Louisiana, and they're a major polluter, all right? They, they just dump their pollution into waterways and the air, and, and they situate themselves in communities of color. We did a whole show on this, actually. And here's the th this is a good example of greenwashing. Formosa Plastics, with all their dumping of, you know, basically polluting the water and the air, they made token donations to local environmental civic groups and funded academic positions <laughs> at local universities. I mean, if it weren't so serious and so criminal, you have to laugh. All right? Again, it's akin to the rapist that makes a, that basically just rapes with impunity but gives a donation to the local feminist group while he keeps raping. And that's what this is about. That's what the public relations industry, in my opinion, does. They are the rapist enabler, all right? Corporate is, you know, fossil fuel industry is raping this planet. They just are. And the public relations firms that they hire, they're the enabler. They cover up for the rapist. It's really what it is. So, you know, we can go through this over and over again. There's lobbying, the other half of public relations. Um, this writer talks about how right after uh, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker's veto of a really ambitious climate bill, researchers at Brown University released a report that showed that in spite of overwhelming testimony in legislative committees in, that favored direct climate action, industry coalitions succeeded in steering the energy policy away from any sort of constructive energy policy, any, any action that would clean up the air and water. So public relations, they, they work to not only take charge of the discourse, but to really um, keep anybody else from speaking out. And they are relentless. 
But what can you do about it? How can you counter deceptive public relations? Well, there's a few watchdog organizations like Global Witness, and some of the things you can do is, quote, um, fact check government and industry claims, counter falsehoods with concrete data, and call on leaders to follow through on their commitments. Now, there are some people who are never going to buy into it, i.e. the Trumpers. So we have to kind of do hearts and minds. But we can't just try and pull their heartstrings and not give facts. We have to do both. So that's what we're dealing with now. And uh, so that, that's, that's what we're – so I'll give you another example. Um, there are some other things you can do to kind of derail PR groups before they derail, but, you know, social justice uh, groups. One, you can strategize, you know, in advance of any public relations approaches and actively plan for them, okay? And they gave the example of the civil rights activists um, that did sit-ins at segregated lunch counters during Dr. King's time. They had strategized in advance. They knew they were going to get bad publicity, and they were ready, and it was smart. Um, this writer is saying that climate activists should also think many steps ahead and to have strategies ready to go for not only dealing with um, PR maneuvers, but also exposing those lies. And there are a few groups, like the water protectors, that already do that. Um, you need to be more discriminating in identifying which politicians, leaders, and allies really are concerned about climate change and which are just talking the talk. So Sunrise Movement in Massachusetts did, did claim a significant victory, according to Grist, uh, for the climate movement in the recent Senate race. And that was between um, a longtime climate supporter, climate change movement supporter, Ed Markey, and the Democratic Senate primary rival, Joseph Kennedy III. So at that time, it worked. Um, you just have to look at the different, different strategies. Um, and you have to look at your goals. Is the goal to convert targets? Is it to persuade them? And, you know, that conceding is in their best interest, or is it to coerce them? And we don't want to do coercion. So another thing, you can make action-oriented demands that go well beyond just opposing dangerous policies and practices, but also propose clear policy changes articulated in detail. That is a really good point. Yes, oppose these dangerous policies, out them, tell the truth about them, but then also propose some policy changes in detail. Have all your facts together. The teacher in me comes out that way. Um, you also have to have a proposal with what they call a clear ask. It'll be more PR resistant. In other words, don't just say, don't you think this is right? Have your proposal ready to go. Have all your facts and just say, now, we're asking you to do this. We're demanding it. What are you going to do? Don't just leave it out there. And that's the other thing, too. If you leave the articulation and the implementation of your ideas up to leaders who don't have climate knowledge or practical experience, they're gonna, those plans are going to be more vulnerable to PR attacks because, again, they don't know what they're doing. Um, you can push for divestment in the fossil fuel companies. All right, so there's a lot of stuff we can do, okay? 
we have to take the duplicity of public relations as a practice into account. They just cannot be allowed to go to do this any longer. And the last article, I'm just going to mention it, uh, ran in E&E News under Policy and Ethics. It was written by Benjamin Hulak for ClimateWire originally in 2016. And the headline was, get this, tobacco and oil industries use same researchers to sway the public. And this is as early as the 1950s. These two industries, fossil fuels and tobacco, shared scientists and they shared publicists, both with the, the charge of basically minimizing the dangers of smoking and the dangers of climate change, or as I call it, global climate de devastation. And these comparisons have been around for a while between the petroleum and the tobacco industries. Um, there have been some that have urged federal regulators to criminally prosecute un oil companies under racketeering charges. And where they got that idea was that in 1999, the Department of Justice did prosecute in a case Philip Morris and other major tobacco plants, plant, and other major tobacco brands. Under they criminally charged them under the RICO law under racketeering charges. So it's been done before. We know it can be done. The oil companies obviously don't like that. They don't like the comparison. But there were documents at the University of California, San Francisco, and they were analyzed by the Center for International Environmental Law, or SEAL. And SEAL is a Washington, D.C.-based advocacy group. And these documents clearly show that the oil and tobacco industries have been linked for decades. Yeah, linked for decades. Um, and the files that SEAL drew the research from have been public for years, so they didn't do anything illegal. There was an unknown author of one memo who worked for, uh, this guy worked for Standard Oil of New Jersey, and he suggested scientists in an, in an advisory committee study the health effects of smoking. Um, quote, I am giving below the names of individuals who might, you might consider as potential members of the medical advisory committee for the tobacco industry as related to its current medical problem, end quote. Um, the person who wrote to the tobacco research board, um, and he alluded that basically there's, there was mounting evidence then that smoking caused health problems. Get this, the same public relations firm is implicated in both industries, Hill and Nalton. And they, they come from New York, and both industries hired Hill and Nalton for outreach as early as 1956. Okay. Um, Theodore Sterling, who is a mathematics professor who did research on smoking that was favorable to the tobacco industry. Um, in fact, Philip Morris paid him paid more than $200,000 in the 90s for his work, studied lead in gasoline for the Ethel Corporation in 1962. And Ethel was a joint venture between General Motors and Standard Oil. So according to Steel President Carol Muffett, quote, from the 1950s onward, the oil and tobacco firms were using not only the same PR firms and same research institutes, but many of the same researchers. Again and again, we found both the PR firms and the researchers worked first for oil, then for tobacco. It was a pedigree the tobacco companies recognized and sought out, end quote. 
seal alerted climate wire to the existence of these documents. Um, and the group's research, SEAL's research, is really about building debate um, regarding oil companies' knowledge. The, the fact that oil companies knew for decades that their product was causing global climate change. And um, it's also part of a push from environmental groups to make the legal case that fossil fuel companies lied for decades about the risk of the risk to global warming, just like tobacco companies lied about the risk of cancer to smoking and other tobacco products. So um, this was, again, this article was written in 2016. So how space House Science, Space, and Technology Chair at the time, Lamar Smith, who's a Republican from Texas, subpoenaed the attorneys, the attorneys general of New York and Massachusetts, who were our, at the time were investigating if ExxonMobil misled investors and the public about climate change, and as well as several environmental groups. Um, and these are Republicans. Smith and his colleagues maintained that the attorney generals colluded with environmentalists in their investigation with okay, true Republican. He's saying that the environmentalists and the attorney general colluded with the environmentalists. Okay. Uh, and again, what are the attorney generals going to get out of it? Environmental groups don't have a lot of money. You know, when you say they, they colluded like that, the implication is that somebody took bribes, but the environmental movement doesn't really have any money to dish out like that. So, you know, another connection, um, and, you know, and shame on Lamar Smith. But, again, he's from Texas, you know, big oil there. So, and, again, this is the instance where we have people that are either very rich or people that make money off the very rich that are putting their own selfish needs ahead of the planet. You know, I'm 61 years old. There is, you know, this isn't about just my future. This is about the future of generations to come, whether they will have a planet that's actually habitable. And, you know, these, these politicians that are basically stonewalling for fossil fuel, they, they just, they need to be basically hauled up on the rug too. You know, this is, this is serious, people. Um, there was a Stanford Research Institute link, so this was a, that uh, demonstrated another connection between oil and tobacco companies, according to SEAL. The Stanford Research Institute, now known as SRI International, because they split with Stanford in 1970. Um, SRI was founded in 46. They studied smog and pollution, and they received Tibet funding from tobacco and oil companies. Excuse my language, but damn. I should make it, damn, damn, damn. I'm sorry, but if, if you know, certain artists can have four-letter words and every other word to say, I, I can say damn, because this, damn, this is just so vile. Um, it just goes on and on. You can read it yourself. You know, what we're really talking about tonight, and it's been a long show, you know, is the fact that not only have we been lied to by the fossil fuel industry, who has reversed the blame, okay, who like a drug dealer says, 
it's not my fault you're hooked. I'm just supplying. You know, it is, you know, the blame is mutual. And fossil fuel corporations cannot evade the blame. They've made boatloads of money. And their greed is, in my opinion, killing the planet. I mean, and greed is an, is an addiction. You know, how much is enough? But they don't seem to care. You know, we, we see billionaires like Elon Musk and, and, and um, Jeff Bezos rushing to see who can pioneer in space first. Are they really interested in science? Or are they looking for a, a rescue capsule when this planet is no longer habitable? I mean, I'm not saying they're doing that, but I, 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 you got to ask the question. And the money they're wasting on that, they could be spending on finding a way to get us off fossil fuel and finding a way to have an equitable energy grid. That's what needs to happen. We have not had an honest debate about this subject ever. So we talked about that, and then we talked about the role that these public relations firms have in terms of not just messaging, but in terms of pushing the lies. You know, Bernays was right. The title of his book, Propaganda, says it all. You know, and we're at a point now where, you know, we only have one planet. And these kids are right. And we are being selfish. We have to do whatever we need to do to save this planet, period. And the very greedy need to be told, get out of Dodge. You know, you're not going to control the debate anymore. You're not going to silence people. We saw the criminal prosecution of noted environmental attorney, Stephen Donzinger, because he dared to defend his client, and he won against Chevron. And his reward was to be disbarred on bogus charges and then to be held in criminal contempt. And he's facing sentencing, because he'll probably lose, by a, a judge, a series of judges that have a clear conflict of interest, because he didn't want to give over files that the opposition Chevron's attorneys would get to look at, he defended his client. And we're going to be talking about Don Zinger in another show. So, you know, again, this is what we're dealing with here. These people are playing hardball. So the question in your mind is, do you really care about whether or not you get to hold on to your damn SUV, or are you going to care about the type of world inherited by not just your kids, but by your grandkids? Will it be habitable? Will it? So that's our show tonight. Hopefully it was a little bit illuminating. We're going to be talking about this more. So at this point now, I say good night and God bless.